Well, if you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll participate together in worship through the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning verse 23 till chapter 11, verse 1. We've read this repeatedly, and we are going to actually study it today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. I'll bring out the New King James Version. God's Word says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but let each one, but each one, the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience's sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe, invites you to dinner and you desire to go eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But I partake with thanks... Why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Great song service this morning. Don't know if you're paying attention, but if you were, that was a great song service. And that last hymn we sang, it has a powerful message. And I think uh, if an American had written that in this generation, he would say, I'd rather have it all than have to choose. I'd rather have it both ways. I want all the fame and Jesus. I want all the wealth and Jesus. I want it all and Jesus. And we want to tack on Jesus to our pursuits instead of making Jesus our pursuit. You ever notice that? And that I find very typical of Christianity today is if Jesus can help me in these other pursuits, that's great. But Jesus himself isn't our pursuit. And that is tragic. So great song. Um, and those ones are written from a generation, from generations ago that understood that true discipleship involves sacrifice. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. Let's do a little review. And if uh, you haven't been around for a little while, then you're going to might struggle with this. But it's just a simple sentence, just a few words. So let's say it together from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, class Knowledge puffs up, love edifies. Very simple statement. The end of chapter 8, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. The theme of chapter 8, 9, and 10 that we're going to finish up today, but it is really a theme that Paul's going to carry with him throughout the book. But we have used it extensively in these three chapters, and we're going to use it as a foundational concept behind dealing with any issue in the church or in the Christian life. 
that we apply this principle consistently, we should not have division. We should not have these kinds of issues that the Corinthians were dealing with cropping up in the church. That if we put that into practice, that the church, not only the local church, but the church universal, would not have the dissension among its ranks that we currently see. So we're going to find it summarized once again. We're going to find the same themes applied to the same issue, but we have seen it handled uh, by example and by application on several different ways by Paul, and we're going to see him wrapping it up and repeating some things that we've already studied in the past few chapters as we finish up chapter 10 this morning. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer together today. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity to look in your word this morning and we recognize the soberness of it. That we are held accountable for your word, not only to know it, but to apply it, to bring into our very lives that you will uh, come to us with an expectation of obedience, with an expectation of fulfillment of this wonderful gift that you've entrusted to us of your very word. Lord, we recognize, uh, we, we hope to recognize its authority. It is not something that we may choose, to make truth, but that we might recognize it is truth. Therefore, it has its demands upon our life, upon our thinking, upon our uh, philosophy and approach to life. Lord, help us to adhere ourselves to it. Lord, we do pray as always for your Spirit's work now. For we need it. For it is certain that no one man can minister even to this number by his own wisdom. To meet the needs that are represented here, whether it be of conviction, of encouragement, of instruction. The Lord, your spirit is capable through your word to do all of that in one message. So, Lord, we trust upon him, but we also trust in him to guard this time from error, from the opinion of men and the philosophies of this world, not only in what is spoken, but what is heard, the manner in which we hear. We might not just hear what we want, but we might hear what you want. And again, we need your help in this, and we thank you that you freely offer to all those who ask you of it. And we do so this morning. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, Paul in Corinthians is going to be dealing with lots of issues in the church, issues that have caused contentions, issues that have broken down relationships within the church to such a degree that they are actually almost contemplating a division that we are comfortable with in our society, but they were uncomfortable with. That is separating themselves from each other and forming new bodies, if you will, uh, and the whole idea that we can somehow cut off an arm and have it go over there and grow a whole body um, was very foreign to biblical times. Uh, the church in Corinth was the church in Corinth. There weren't churches in Corinth. Uh, there was one. They met house to house. They certainly had those social units, but 
in terms of identification, they were a single unit. They were the church of Corinth, not the churches. And so in our understanding and our thinking of what it means to be uh, the church uh, and participating in it, and we look around and we say, well, there's lots of churches. Uh, that's not something that they would have thought about, but they were very near to it because they're already saying, well, I'm in the church of Paul. I'm in the church of Apollos. I'm in the church of Peter. I'm in the church of Jesus. So we're already starting to see this kind of separation. And Paul says, this is ungodly. Now, does that mean that we can somehow uh, turn the clock back and in the course of this service or of this teaching out of this passage or the podcast, that we can go back and have a single church here in the church of Albuquerque? Not likely. It's just not going to happen. We have rather seen this fracturing uh, evidence of not uh, the wisdom of God, but the wisdom of men. You see, the wisdom of God is singular, not plural. The wisdom of men is always divisive and always goes in many different directions. And so until we come to this unified stand upon God's word as truth, (coughs) excuse me, we cannot go back into that realm. But we as an individual local church are called upon to apply this principle that no longer will there be new churches born out of this one outside of its purposeful work that we choose to make that happen, an effort to multiply this ministry. Not because we were unable to resolve issues within our church. Our current condition allows us to run away from a principle like this, doesn't it? Because rather than dealing with issues, we can simply pull up anchor and sail off to another harbor. Rather than weather a storm. And Paul makes it clear that his expectation is that they're going to resolve these issues by applying this principle consistently to each of the issues that was bringing division in their midst. And that is knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 10 tells us how it is being applied by Paul in terms of his liberty. Yes, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. There's that word again, building up, that when we look at the work of the church to strengthen and build up one another, it demands something of us. And it's not that we sit there and flex our Christian liberty, but rather that we flex our Christian love for one another. It says, I'm going to edify you. And if that demands sacrifice of me, I will put myself into the bonds of Christ that I might minister better to you. And that has been the theme we have seen repeated that Paul himself says, I've tried to emulate that for you. I've been the example. I have all these rights as an apostle. I have the rights as your spiritual uh, forebearer. I have the rights to come to you and to demand this and this and this. But I don't want any of those. Because I won't want them to stand between you and Jesus Christ. So I have a right to have a wife and to expect you to care for her. I have a right to demand a Uh, salary. I have a right to expect that you're going to care for my physical needs as I care for your spiritual needs. I have the right to this exercise of this authority and I exercise none of it. 
because I want to win you to Christ. I'm not interested in, in flexing my liberties. I'm interested in building up your spiritual lives. And this is the application of that principle that love edifies. It seeks not its own. It seeks rather to build up one another. And therefore, all that I have been engulfed in as a very young person here in this country and in a lot of other countries as well, but I was raised here, so I know what you're engulfed in because you're raised in the same kind of culture that I was, and that is that we ought to know our rights and exercise them and claim them. This is the American way, isn't it, after all? We have these rights. They are self-evident. That we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we're going to fight to keep them. That's not edifying. That's That's puffing yourself up. It's not building up others. It's not seeking to exercise our love, but rather the outer perimeters of our liberties. And God says, yes, you have all those liberties. You have it. I mean, it is lawful for you under Christ, um, but is it really helpful to anyone? We think that by the acquisition and the possession of, of certain liberties that we only are worshiping by using them to their fullest extent. And quite the opposite is true. And again, the example for us is Jesus Christ. Who could do anything and chose on Calvary's cross to do nothing but die. The song goes, he could have called 10,000 angels, but he didn't. He could have done a great number of things. He could have, with a word, struck everyone in the court with blindness, uh, which he had done prior to walk out. But the time was now to die for us. And so he sacrificed that liberty to do what he would, to do what God wanted him to do, and as to die for us. And he hung there on that cross, sacrificing every liberty that he possessed. Why? For you and I. And Paul wants to share in that kind of heart and that kind of of service. And he's calling the Corinthians to do the same. And in so doing, he calls us into that same model of Christ that, yes, we have all this liberty in Christ, but what we are going to be measured by is not how much you used your liberties, but how much you constrained them to minister to others. How much have you built up others? And that is the measure of love. He expresses it again in verse 24, let no one seek his own. We've already used that expression multiple times in the past few weeks. We come to it actually here don't seek your own, but each other's well-being. That each one is going to seek out that one's well-being. That as we do that mutually, we find that all of us will be met in terms of our needs. We will all be cared for. 
You see, again, our propensity is to look out for number one. We've been trained in that, that no one else is going to do that. And that is simply in the church unacceptable. It's unacceptable on both ends. It's unacceptable that all we're doing is worrying about our own. And that means not only just my own interests, but me and mine. And I want to, if I say that, me and mine, what immediately comes to your mind? Honestly, me and mine. What comes to your mind is usually your immediate physical family. Me and mine. When you use that expression um, and you hear it used, me and mine, um, that is the ones that I, that, that I count dear to me. Uh, and if the, your local church doesn't come to mind, there's a problem. If the church universal doesn't come to mind, there's a problem. If Jesus Christ doesn't come to mind, there's a problem, isn't there? I'm going to watch out for me and mine because nobody else will. But the fact is is that we are called upon by God to look out for one another. And where does it begin? And so we have the, the we have a double-edged sword here that's cutting down the church. And on one side, I'm looking out for myself because no one else over there is doing it. But yet in doing that, I find that now they have an equal claim that I need to watch out for myself because he's not doing it. So where does it begin? It begins by not saying as soon as they start watching out for me, then I'll start watching out for them. No, that is not sacrifice. The beginning of sacrifice is to say, I will take the initiative to say, while everyone would say I am right and just in taking care of me and those that I care for and responsible for first, and though the world would say that that is right, God's Word says differently. I will sacrifice that and I will look out for the needs of others first. With no expectation that they will reciprocate. It's not that I'm, I'll try this out for a month or two, but if they don't start handing something back, I'm quitting. That's not going to work. And we have this trial and error approach to obedience to God's Word. And I've heard it frequently over the course of my 25 years in the ministry, is I tried that and it didn't work. I tried obeying that pastor, but it didn't work out. What? What do you mean it didn't work out? What you mean is it didn't work out for your comfort, for your idea of what God should have paid you back in. And we have a whole milieu in the Christian church is trying to teach this, that if you do this, God is obligated to do these things for you. That if you give 10%, God's got to put this amount of money in your wallet uh, miraculously. Um, Foolishness. Where's the sacrifice? Sacrifice says I'm going to give with no expectation of return. This is love that's going to build up others. That should drive not just ministry life, but should drive the Christian life entirely, that I'm not going to seek out my best, but I'm going to seek out what's best for you. And the phenomenal thing is, if we all decide today to conform ourselves to this simple little principle, then we're all going to be well cared for. 
But as long as a handful of us believe that it's not going to work out, I don't think that I don't think that's going to work. That's just pie in the sky thinking. That's utopia thinking. It's not going to work. I, I, this is the real world, Pastor, and you've got to watch out for your own. Then you're out of the loop. You're going to be a recipient of others' love, but you're not going to be edifying anyone. And the sad part is, is the one you're going to destroy first is yourself. That's the reality of selfishness is that it has the incredible capacity to destroy yourself first and foremost. The principles laid forth here in verse 23 and 24 again, anew for us. It is applied to the specific circumstances there in Corinth. Eat what's sold in the meat market. Don't ask any questions. Everything is the Lord's, all its fullness. As long as you're thankful to God for it, participate in it. And enjoy it. This is God's creation. He created it for you to enjoy. But the way to enjoy it is not to fill yourself up, but to uh, use the resources God has given to you to minister to others. Uh, And in the midst of that, you can eat whatever. Your conscience doesn't have to be violated there in terms of what you participate in it. Um, And so if you are invited by unbelievers to go to dinner, eat what they serve you, don't ask any questions, your conscience is not in question. You can thank the Lord at a heathen's home as much as you can thank the Lord in your own home. Did you know that? You should try it someday. You know, they serve the food and you're going to sit there and you go, "Um, mind if I thank the Lord for what we got? Ask permission. If they say, we don't do that here. Say, okay, and then just thank the Lord yourself. They'll sit there and look at you like you're a, what is wrong with him? We're not ever inviting him again. In that case, you better take every opportunity to share with Christ that one meal because it might be your last. But thank the Lord. You can be thankful in your spirit and participate in that. And you say, oh boy, I remember the first time I was served a food that um, I knew because I'd been in a cook long enough that uh, it required alcohol to be made. But you all know that once you cook it, it's not alcoholic. Okay? Just want to share that. But back in the day, that was a big issue in my circles. And um, couldn't. And I was just like, okay. Then I realized after I got educated a little, even then, even knowing what, that I, it wasn't alcoholic, I still had a hard time eating it because of what I was trained in. It's time we go in and simply enjoy the things of God, but there's a confinement to that. There's a boundary for that enjoyment. And that boundary is, am I going to be able to minister as a result of this? And so here's a person offering you a meal. You've eaten it. You've not asked, you know, is this a dog or a sheep? You know, I didn't ask that in Peru when I was there. Don't ever ask. It's offensive, but... Um, they're not supposed to serve you dog if you're from America. Um, but it's sometimes there. If they're poor and need to, then they need to. Um, don't ask. Just eat it. Enjoy it. Be thankful to God for it. However, if they make it a matter of worship, if they make it a matter of conscience, and this is what he says, if you go into a house and they serve you something that's been offered to idols and they say specifically, this was offered to idols, 
and they're testing you to see if you're going to participate in their worship, then you say, oh, no, thank you. You see, the matter wasn't the food itself. The food didn't change. It was the same animal. What was different was the heart of the people who were serving it to you. The one was just enjoying a meal with you. And here we go. And Jesus himself went out there and ate with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees condemned him for it. But he went out there not to participate in their worship, but to call them to his worship and to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is still upon us, is to call men to worship God through faith in Jesus Christ. And to do that, we don't invite them here. We go out to them there. That's the best way to reach people with the gospel is not to bring them into this building called a church, which isn't, but um, or even into this worship service. They don't always understand what's going on here, but rather go out to them with the gospel, into their homes. But then you have another whole group of people who come to you and say, uh, here we go, are you going to participate in this with us? They know it's worship, and they know you know it's worship. Here, we want you to participate in this with us. This meat, we offered it to Apollo this morning, and now we're going to worship Apollo by eating this meat that we offered to Apollo at the temple. And there is a huge temple to Apollo in the middle of Corinth. Still there. Parts of it. No, thank you. Why? Did the meat somehow... Get poisoned when it... No, the, your neighbor that I went and ate at last night, he offered me to Apollo, but he just served it and didn't say anything. So it wasn't an issue. But now your meat, I can't eat. Same meat, same place. But now it's a matter of testimony. I remember in my last pastorate that I was had a gal come to church. Her husband wasn't a believer at all. And uh, but I'd go and visit him, and I, he was an a interesting character. Um, and every time I went in there, he'd offer me a beer. Well, we all know what that was about. He thought that was the funniest thing on the planet was to offer a preacher a beer every time he came. And so one time I came, showed up, and he said, um, "I have a beer, Pastor. You want a beer?" I said, "Yes, I do." What? I said, "If you're offering, I'll take one." So he brings me a beer and I crack it open and we're sitting there and I get up and go pour it out in the sink. And then he goes, why did you waste? I said, it was mine. You gave it to me. Didn't you? Why are you wasting it by putting it in your stomach and ruining yourself with it? And so I took it, but I didn't consume it because it was all about testing my testimony. And here this individual is coming forward and saying, here, this is offered idols. We all know it is, and, and we all know what this is about. But um, not because, it's not that you can't eat that meat, because it doesn't mean anything that it was taken into that place and offered in front of a rock. It just doesn't mean that much. It didn't change the, the, the structure of that meat. It wasn't poisoned by it. Um, you could have still eaten it. It's still the, the something you could have enjoyed. But now it's about how can I minister to this person? And the worst thing I can do is participate in their worship with them. And again, I'll bring it right back into today. We all know what the world worships. 
And so can I go over to Isotopes Park, and we have this a couple times a year. We had two times this year, didn't we? We go over to Isotopes Park and uh, have a group thing there. We go to to ball game. Um, As far as I know, it wasn't anything that any of you are really, really committed to, but um, we go there to enjoy the game, and we're there, and it's fun, and we enjoy that. We enjoy the fellowship with each other. We enjoy the ball game. Some of you don't care what's going on out there. Um, You're just there for the cotton candy. All right, I know why you're there. Um, and that's all right, and we enjoy that. But it's a whole different thing to do that with a group of people that really are just there to enjoy the game and those that are worshiping the game who live for it. And for those people, I'm not going to try to sit down and participate in their worship to try to reach them. But rather, I call them out of us and no, I you know, I have something more important to share with you than to go and worship with you. And whether that worship is some form of entertainment, which pretty much is America's worship, or whether it's pursuit of the almighty dollar, or whether it's, it's whatever it is, whatever their form of worship is, I'm not going to participate in that with you because I'm calling you to come and worship the one true and living God by faith in Jesus Christ. And so I don't want to overstep that even though there's nothing fundamentally evil about going and enjoying a ball game but if that's what that person lives for then no that's not what i'm going to go and do with them i'm going to call them out of that by not participating in it before them and so we are worried about their conscience verse 29 says not your own but that of the other for why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience So while I have the liberty to do that, I recognize that I'm not participating in worship while I'm there. There are other people worshiping while I'm there. I'm certain of it. But I'm not. So I can go in good conscience and enjoy a game, um, but I know I can walk away with it, without it, without having to ever go there again. I I could miss every ball game from now on, never go to another one, and I, I wouldn't miss it, frankly. But that's not the case, brothers. And so we examine their God and we say, if this is your worship, I don't want to be a part of it because I worship the one true and living God. Have I constrained myself? Yes. Has their conscience constrained me? To a degree what's really constraining me is my love for them. I want them to know Christ. I don't want any roadblock between them and Christ. I don't want them to look at and hear me and say, you're just like me. I don't want the world to look at my life and say, you're just like me, so there's no difference, there's no reason to trust in Christ. I was deeply grieved yesterday. Really started last uh, Friday night because of Facebook. And I asked my wife last night before we went to bed, I said, I don't know if I need to just write a lot or stop reading at all. One of those two ways. I have to go one direction or the other. I cannot continue this way. Um, a gal that presents herself as a spiritual person quotes lots of verses on her postings, posts multiple, multiple, multiple times a day, um, presents herself as a spiritual kind of guru over, you know, thousands of people are her friends and, and um, 
gets on there and presents something that was a complaint against somebody else's questioning of her modesty. And she initiated an attack on this guy who happened, of course. I don't know why it always is, but it's always from the Baptist church in my town. Uh, it, has to, it always has to be the Baptist church in their town. Some guy who questioned her modesty. And uh, so I read all 48 responses to her posting. All 48 of them. And I didn't write one. Um, and they attacked that man mercilessly. Called him a hater. And once you label someone with a name like that, you can say all kinds of evil things about them because they're a hater. Never mind that you become a hater of the hater, and therefore you're also a hater. We don't see that, but we attack him mercilessly, and we defend this gal um, to the nth degree and spout off horrific things that have no basis in Scripture and have no business uh, among Christians. And I want to tell you about number 48. God writes in there and says, this is what church is like. Glad I'm an atheist. Get the picture? She was there to defend herself against someone who sent her a private message, but she wanted to defend her liberty to wear what she wanted to wear. And literally, and I mean this literally, not figuratively, to hell with everyone else. As long as I protect my liberty to wear whatever I want to wear. And there's an atheist, what I write to him. It says, Where's the love of Christ? He recognized. He says it on there. And I'm grieved. And I get up in the morning even more grieved. And I go out and I, I'm, I went out and my family always gets worried when I go out and work by myself and I don't want anyone to work with me. Um, and, I'm, and I'm grieved. I'm not just grieved because of that, but I'm grieved because I didn't say anything. And I can rationalize that to the end of the world. I can rationalize that no one on Facebook reads more than three sentences and I can't counteract all of that in three sentences. I'd have to write a book. And that's what I would do and what I maybe should do. And then I'm sitting there and I'm just going, Lord, why did I not write anything? Why am I a coward? And then I can rationalize some more. It wouldn't make a difference. They'd just attack me. I'd become a hater too. And then I remember, oh, there's some prophets of God in the Old Testament that everyone hated. And they were called hate. They called him a hater. Why can't you just let us live our syncretistic lives and serve the one true and living God on one day and the gods of the nations the other days? Why can't you leave us alone? Let's kill him. And that's what the prophets faced. And my question to God for all morning was, why am I such a coward that I'm not willing to be a prophet of God? Not foretelling the future, not any of that, but doing what the prophets did the most, and that is point at our sin and call it that. Loudly, boldly, 
often and have a zero toleration for that kind of nonsense among God's people. Paul says, you should be confined in your liberty by your love. And if that means that you're going to let people tear you down in public, you're not going to have to go out and attack them to defend yourself. I think uh, someone tore up Christ in public and he said not a word. Particularly when Pilate was involved. He's answered Pilate to a degree. Didn't have anything to say to the religious people. They wouldn't listen. Oh, that we would have this kind of liberty, a liberty that is fully confined by the love of God that says, I want to edify, I want to build up others, I want to lead others to Christ. And again, the end of this chapter talks about why do I do all this? Why am I willing to suffer immensely and even hunger and thirst? Why am I willing to seek to not offend anyone? That is not to hurt their feelings, but I'm not willing to to keep them from Christ, anything that might keep them from Christ, I'm willing to endure any kind of maltreatment. Why? Because I want them to be saved. That they may be saved. And I don't want anything about me to to keep them from Christ. If they look at my life and say, oh, you know, you're fighting and, and, and attacking one another, devouring one another, as Galatians says, take heed lest you devour one another. Boy, they devoured that poor guy. Nameless guy. We have no idea what he actually wrote. Um, That wasn't shared. But just the fact that this girl felt attacked was all needed. We're going to tear him to shreds publicly. And let me tell you, the public is listening, watching, and enjoying. Paul says, I'm not going to do anything that's going to hinder folks from getting saved to point to me and say, you see, they're not any different than us. So they have nothing to offer me. So why should I consider Christ? Couched in the midst of this principle of our liberty and the confines of liberty, which is love, which has the purpose of edifying, without that, the exercise of your liberty is just to puff yourself up. Yes, you know you have these liberties, in Christ, but to exercise them without constraint is just for yourself. And I'll let God deflate you in the day of judgment. But if you really want to exercise true Christian liberty and real knowledge of God, mature knowledge of God, it will be constrained by a love that says, I want to build up others and I want to see others get saved. And so in the midst of all this, we have verse 31, which all of you probably have committed to memory in one translation or another. Therefore, whatever you eat or drink, I'm sorry, I said it wrong. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, let this be the rule of your conscience that God receives the glory. And let's be real precise in understanding what that means. 
It does not that I manufacture a way for my behavior to somehow glorify God. I see Christians doing that. Well, God could be glorified by me doing this if, um, uh, you know, I can give to her. You know, so I can go out there and play the lottery because, I, honest, if I win, I'm giving half of it to the Lord. And God's glorified by that. You're convinced. Oh, let's make it a different same kind of model. I'm going to go out there and, you know, I, I know how to make money out there in the world. Um, not always legitimately and not always legally, but I'm going to give out of it. Does that really glorify God? Whatever we do, it says to glorify God. What does it mean to bring glory to God? Very precisely, I think Paul has already stated that. And that is, God is glorified when people come to know Him as Savior and when His people are built up. This is what it means to glorify God. We ask God, we invite Him regularly in our prayer time to glorify. We sang it today, Lord, glorify Thy name. He has glorified His name and He will glorify His name. While we sing the song that He should glorify His name in our midst, uh, God has called upon us to glorify Him, to exalt Him, to lift Him up. He has lifted Himself up. He who went down as low as humility could take Him to the very death and to to the lower regions And God has glorified him and lifted him up. Glorified just means to lift up, to exalt. Are we lifting up Christ? That is that when people look at me, what are they looking at me lifting up? Is it myself? Is it me and mine? Is it this form of government? Is it wealth? What do they see me lifting up? That's what glorify means. What do they see? They're watching you walk around like this. What are you lifting up while you're living your life? Who are you boasting of as you're living your life? What are you lifting your arms up into heaven and for all men to say, look, you remember at the Olympics and they held those things up there, look. You know, they're still around their necks, so they kind of did this, you know. Look at my gold medal. Lift it up. Look. You see those guys win the Stanley Cup and they all come together in the middle of the rink and what do they do? They lift up that trophy. They glorify it. This is something worth pursuing. This is what we have lived and worked and trained for. Lift it up. Exalt it because that's our objective. Brethren, what are you walking around holding up? And everyone's watching you. So when you read, glorify God, whatever you do, glorify God, it's not in secret. You can't glorify in secret. Yeah, God. God gets the credit for that. I'm holding him right here. Yeah, God's got my back. Too bad he doesn't have your hands right up over your head. Oh, we'll glorify God. That's what it means. Whatever you do, make sure that you're holding up Christ as you're doing it. That when everyone looks at you, it says, oh boy, he's trying to serve the Lord there. He's not caring about 
himself. He's not trying to lift himself up. He's trying to lift the Lord up. And when people really do that, the world doesn't get it. I think we have an opportunity to see uh, some ball players out there who uh, understand that their role in playing ball is really in, the, in our culture, just entertainment and worship. And they're trying to glorify Christ while they're participating in that. And uh, they get hammered for it regularly. Um, but they're trying to say, and, and, and then they get cut or they get spoken evil of or the teammates don't like them or whatever. And the world just waits for them to try to defend themselves. And the best thing they can do is just say, well, praise the Lord. See, I can succeed for Christ and I can fail for Christ. I can be torn apart by this world. I can be chewed up and and spit out and called a failure by this world. But as long as I'm walking around with Jesus in these uplifted arms saying, look at Him, I am glorifying God. And it doesn't matter what I'm doing down here if that's the purpose of my life. And your purpose, you guys' purpose over there on the base is to hold up Jesus there. Your purpose on the force, hold up Jesus there. Your purpose at the hospital, hold up Jesus there. Your purpose in all those dental offices, hold up Jesus there. Everywhere we go, are we holding up Jesus? Whatever you do, glorify His name. Hold Him up. That's all it means. That when they look at you, they see Him. They don't see you. And so I can participate in a lot of activities. I can thank God for it. I can, I can enjoy it because God has placed these things here for my enjoyment. But the question is, do they see Jesus when they're done? Can the world be saved? Can your, uh, God's people be edified? And now we come to verse 1 of chapter 11, which is the fulfillment, the culmination for Paul personally of all that we've studied. He gave himself as an example back in chapter 9. He now comes to this very sobering statement, and it is very sobering for me. Um, And frankly, it troubles me a lot. Um, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And fundamentally, Paul recognized his responsibility to be an example. That the mature in God must live in such a manner as to provide those who are yet mature in Christ or do not have Christ at all in their life as a model to imitate, to mimic. That we who claim to know Christ best and His Word well must follow Him on a more intimate level not only for our own benefit, but much more importantly, for the benefit of others to have an example. 
Why is this sobering? It's because as I look over my life and I start to catalog it a little bit and I ask the question, am I someone that I would use this, that I would call my church to this verse and say, imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. We recognize that there is no perfect human standard here, but we also know that we have the capacity with the Holy Spirit to truly please God by obedient living. And true Christian maturity is to do so no matter the cost. To do so so consistently that we can declare without a lot of reservation, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. But in so doing, we also recognize that please don't imitate me when I fail to imitate Christ. But Paul states it only in the positive. And so we have this burden. And uh, Christ didn't say there would be no burdens in your Christian living, just that His burden was light. Because you're not carrying it by yourself. By God's Spirit, through His Word, when we choose to make love the boundary of our living that seeks to serve God by serving others, God has promised to help. And for me, that means I have to overcome shyness. Weird, huh? This is the safest place in the world for a shy person is behind a pulpit. And be bold and proclaim the gospel to people, even strangers, and even worse yet, acquaintances. But I want to challenge that this isn't just for pastors to say imitate me as I imitate Christ. But as you mature in the Lord, I want to challenge you more and more that this needs to be your statement. Be like me. Because I am striving to be like Christ. God has given us human examples as an intermediary. That is, to move us closer to Him, He's given us these human examples to kind of lead us. And a horrible thing has come about in the last 100, 150 years, and that is we have stopped honoring the wisdom of maturity. by glorifying rebellion. How do you glorify rebellion? I can look at people and tell that to tell you whether they are glorifying rebellion. By their antisocial, anti anti behavior. Brethren, you need to learn from those who are mature 
how you should be using or not using the things of this world. Even as the things of this world seems to whiz by the mature, say, you don't get our generation, you're wrong. We get it in spades. We know what it's all about. I watched TV take over our culture growing up. And now I'm watching the I-Gods take over our culture. It's not different. Who are you using as your example to follow? How should I participate in this world? Pastor, you're just kind of fanatical. So was Christ. And I'm trying to be like Him. You would do worse than to find the mature in Christ and say, I want to be like them. I want to imitate them. Because from what I can see in their life, they are seeking to imitate Christ. If that makes me really weird in my society, then so be it. Because I'm holding up something very different than what the world is glorifying. Brethren, you can enjoy this life, but you need to be warned that God will demand that you glorify Him. And when we fail to meet that demand, He will judge. Israel learned it the hard, hard way. And I see a lot of Christians in the churches today learning it or not learning it the same hard, hard way Israel not learned it. Brethren, glorify God. Lift Him up. I'm trying to. If it's difficult for you to understand how you need to be doing that in your life, then imitate me because I am trying my hardest to imitate Christ. I'll fail sometimes. This is a load God has put on my shoulders and for every mature Christian here, truly mature in Christ, it's on your shoulders too. You lead. With no guarantee that anyone follows. You lead. Let's pray.